Good morning, Grace. Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Good morning. Have you ever gotten a string of bad news? Not just a piece, but a string of bad news? That is, have you ever had a time in your life where one thing after another went wrong? When you just couldn't seem to catch a break over a period of time? As you think about that, all of us have, of course, on some level, to greater and lesser degrees. But as you as you think about that and draw to mind how you responded to it, or perhaps are responding to it, think about the disciples' run in John chapter 13. We're in 14 now, but it's in the same time period, the same evening as John 13. Think of their run in 13. Judas left to be, betray Jesus. Jesus had told all of them that someone would, and Jesus left to betray him. Jesus told Peter that he would repeatedly deny him. Jesus, the one that these men had given everything to follow, kept promising to leave and go to a place they couldn't come. And the disciples were getting increasingly confident that by going away, Jesus meant something other than a trip up north, or but that he was in fact talking about being killed and That's a lot to take in, isn't it? Just a matter of a few hours. For most of us, that puts our problems, as real as they are, into a different light. But what it also did, and Jesus announcing these things and explaining that these trials were soon to come upon his disciples, was give him a chance to shape or reshape their perspective on the trials, on the troubles. He helped them both by naming the hard things that were to come, and by explaining to them how to properly make sense of them, to understand them, to think about them so that they could respond in right ways to them. Perhaps you've noticed that this idea really stuck out to me this week as I was writing the sermon and praying through it. But perhaps you've noticed that like the disciples, they're figuring this out fast, but like the disciples, you have very little control over many things that happen to you in your life. If so, you probably have also figured out, even if you haven't yet learned to use these words or to express it in exactly this way, you've probably also learned that when troubles come, when hard things happen, when things out of your control show up, 
you've got really two options in how you respond to them. The first option is to ride the roller coaster of the circumstances, responding to them as they happen and as they seem to you. In that case, hard things are often crushing and easy things are welcomed. There's no ability to make a distinction for a hard thing that could be a blessing and an easy thing that could be a curse. There's only one other option. The second option is that something outside of the circumstance itself is what shapes you and determines your response. In that case, hard things and easy things alike. There's a a separate lens through which you understand them and make sense of them and therefore respond to them. Well, Jesus charged his disciples, this passage, in this passage, Jesus charged his disciples to take the second option. Ride the circumstances and allow them to determine your response or let something else outside of you govern you through the circumstances. Jesus said, choose the second. The heart of this passage then, before I pray, the two big ideas are a command for or from Jesus, not Grace Church, not to let your troubles overtake you. It's not to not have troubles. It's to not let your troubles overtake you. And second, it's an exp- explanation of how belief in God is the means to do that. So let me say those two things again. Two things at the heart of this passage. A command from Jesus not to let troubles overtake you. And second, an explanation of how belief in God is the means to obey. And so the main takeaways, if if the Lord is pleased to do a work, not just in your mind, but to transform the way you live, three things. Carefully consider what troubles you and what doesn't. Think carefully about what what things cause your heart to be troubled in this life and what things don't. Second, carefully consider your response to either. I want you to think carefully. What do I do when troubles come? Or where where exactly is my sense of peace coming from when I don't have trouble? Lastly, third, fight to believe the things that Jesus teaches in this passage. Let's Let's pray. God, thank you that Your word is true in all that you say. Thank you that it is true and it is right. That is to say, in everything that it says, when we orient our lives and order our lives according to it, it is right and good. Thank you that it's filled with good things. Like John said this morning, blessings, wine in abundance, full barns. Thank you that it's filled with those, but thank you that it's also realistic and true and right when it comes to hard things as well. And it's hard to imagine a harder season for anyone to endure other than what was happening right now, this portion of John's gospel. The Son of God, the perfect Holy One of Israel was about to go to the cross on behalf of the sins, not just to the people around him, not just the descendants of Abraham, but for all who would receive him in faith, and not just from that time, but of all time. He was soon to be forsaken by the Father. He was soon to leave the disciples, having been betrayed and denied, mocked and beaten, scorned, hung on a tree. If anything is troubling, it's these things. Thank you that 
your word is honest about all of that, honest about the disciples' trouble, but also honest about how they can navigate that in a way that is honoring to you and good for their soul and proclaims Christ to the world, even in their response. May we see this and hear this and love this and live this in increasing measure today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, when it came to what uh, we saw a few weeks ago in Jesus being troubled in his spirit, I, I said a number of these things, but I think they're worth repeating even briefly this morning. When hard things happen, our hearts are often troubled. In fact, that's the definition of a hard thing, right? Is when it troubles your heart. What would it mean to call something hard if it didn't trouble you? Well, nevertheless, our passage opens with Jesus telling the disciples that although hard things had had and were about to in increasing measure take place, they ought not let them let, let them trouble their hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says in verse 1. That's an interesting charge, right? Think, think about that. This isn't just some words that we read in a, a holy book. These are the words of our Lord for us even today. It's an interesting charge to this particular people at this particular time not to let their hearts be troubled, both because of what the disciples had already gone through and what they were about to, and probably even more significantly, given the fact that John has told us several times that Jesus himself had a troubled heart, it's a little bit of an odd thing that he would charge them with this. And so the question you need to ask, you need to feel before you can rightly apply this passage, is was Jesus commanding his disciples, do as I say, not as I do? Is that what he, what he was saying? His heart was troubled, and now he's telling them not to have theirs be troubled, My dad used to say that to me for different things. Do as I say, not as I do, son. Well, maybe it's something else. Is there a difference? The last time John said it, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, not his heart. Is there a difference between having a troubled heart and a troubled spirit? Is there some other explanation of what's going on here? Uh, I think there is. Three, Three keys to understanding this charge before we get to Jesus' means of obeying it. First, there is no indication that Jesus said what he said because the disciples at this time were troubled by wrong things. And so maybe they were just troubled by bad stuff. You know, their their favorite sports team just lost, and they were just crushed inside, and Jesus is like, don't be troubled by that. You guys are foolish. That's not. There's no indication that's what was going on here. In fact, it's the opposite. Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial, and Jesus' suffering and death were all things that would have been wrong not to be troubled by. They needed to be troubled by those things. That's the first thing to see. And sort of the other side of that, again, we saw this in Jesus. We saw we talked about Jesus' troubled spirit. Second, Jesus didn't say what he said because true godliness means being unmoved by hard things in this life. It's a, it's a false understanding that sometimes creeps into the church that when hard things come, genuine faith means you're not negatively affected by them. It's it's a wrong understanding of rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. There's a way in which that's true, but not this particular way. The command to not let their heart be troubled wasn't a command not to experience pain in this tragedy, in the string of tragedies. Again, as was the case with Jesus, those things should trouble any godly person. So it's not that. 
So what is it then? What is this? What's at the heart of this command? Third and finally, Jesus said what he said because he didn't want them to live as those who had no hope. So the heart of this command is a prohibition against living as people who would despair. It is okay, even right and good, to have a troubled heart in troubling times like these. But Jesus was commanding his disciples to keep their troubled hearts from dominating them. They were to not be overcome by their troubles. Things were hard and would get harder, but that grace was not the end of the story. It never is for Christians. And it was the rest of the story that Jesus was about to call them to focus on. Remember, Grace Church, remember this. If your hope is in Jesus, your troubles as real and as serious and even as prolonged in, in this life as they might be, as rooted in sin, yours or someone else's, as they might be, it is never the end of the story. And the great call of the Word of God is for us to focus on the end of the story. So like I said at the beginning, the disciples had to decide whether they were going to be controlled by their circumstances or by something else. Again, Jesus' command was to go with the something else option. And then he continued by providing the something else for them. He told his disciples, and now us through them, how to inoculate themselves from being dominated by a troubled heart and gave them the antidote for whatever overwhelming trouble had already taken root. In other words, let me say this again, say it repeatedly. A big part of this passage is Jesus' explanation of how you can keep yourself from having troubled heart that controls you or how to deal with it when it happens. Grace, have you ever been tempted to let your troubles overtake you? Yes. (laughs) Is it happening to you right now, perhaps? Do you know someone who struggles with this? This morning as I was praying for all of you, my my two strong burdens were one, that you would get this, that you would get the word of the Lord. And second, that you would apply it to your lives in your troubles and apply it to the lives of those in your life who are troubled. That you wouldn't just understand these concepts, but that you would swallow this pill of belief that Jesus is calling us to. And in doing that, I started to pray. I particular person came to my mind right away who's going through a pretty difficult time, and it has been for quite a while. I was praying for her, praying this for her, and then another person from Grace Church came to mind, and then another, and another. It just occurred to me, there's trouble, there's real trouble, there are real hardships that we're going through together. Listen, listen carefully to these words. They're not just meant to be thought of conceptually, they're meant to be applied, and when we do, we will find help that our trouble will not overtake us. So what then was Jesus' solution? How do you obey this? He gave the command and he gave the solution. How were the disciples to restrain and repair their troubled hearts? Look at the rest of verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. How? How do you do that? Here it is. You ready? Believe in God. Believe also in me. All right. Well, (laughs) thought it would be a little bit more specific than that. How do you keep yourself, how how do you keep your troubles from controlling you or get rid of them once they have? Believe in God and believe in Jesus. On the surface, that sounds simple enough. Before we get to the particular content of that, though, let me remind you of something. Jesus was not talking about some kind of generic belief in some kind of generic God. 
And he certainly was not talking about, hey, believe whatever you want about me and that'll fix you. That's not what he was talking about. He had something specific in mind. But let me, let me warn you before I tell you that specific thing. This happens all the time for me as a pastor. Maybe you've experienced this too. More often than not, still, more than, more than not, encounter people who claim to believe in God. Lots of statistics out there, surveys out there that would say the number of people who would deny that, atheists, professing atheists today is growing. But by far in this area, most of the people I encounter believe in some type of God. But with just a little bit of digging, I just ask a few questions. It quickly becomes apparent that they believe in a God largely of their own making. They've created this God. Many even in the church, you and I, believe They believe in God, the God of the Bible, but often only a small portion of it actually is tied to God's self-revelation in the Bible. The rest we've sort of patched together from all kinds of stuff you've heard and read and come up with on your own. And again, on one hand, we all do that to some degree. None of us believes everything we believe about God rightly, but there's a big difference, Grace. This is, I hope, the heart of our church There's a big difference between continually seeking the Spirit's help to read God's Word as we ought on one hand, which again, I hope is what characterizes most of us, and only occasionally consulting the Word of God and doing it almost entirely out of context on the other, which unfortunately is how many people approach it. So here's the simple point I'm trying to make before we get to the content of what Jesus was getting at. Believing in something you've made up and called God rather than the actual God of the Bible, is not what Jesus is talking about here. And it will not prevent your heart from being overtaken by trouble when it comes. You can't just believe whatever you might concoct in your head or somebody else tells you. The belief that Jesus called his disciples to is rooted in specific truths about God and specific promises from God to his people. So again, then, what specifically did Jesus have in mind when he said, do not let your hearts be troubled, believe And God, believe also in me. Well, according to this passage, the vaccine, an antidote for a troubled heart, has six ingredients to it. Before we get to them, let's remember that the ultimate source of all of this, the reason that these six ingredients can do what Jesus promises they will do, the banner over all of that, listen, Grace, the banner over all of what Jesus said is the straightforward reality that his followers need not be ought not be, must not be, overcome by their troubles because he had come to take their trouble. That's the only reason this whole thing works. They needed not be overwhelmed by trouble because Jesus was about to be for their sake and for ours. That's awesome, Grace. That's the heart of the gospel. It was precisely because of the trouble that Jesus willingly took upon himself that the promises he made in this passage hold true. It is because Jesus was crushed by the iniquity of the world that we don't need to be. Amen. To be clear, the six aspects of belief in God and that Jesus prescribed in this passage, the six ingredients to keep and rescue us from being overcome by trouble, only hold fast because Jesus was overcome by the troubles of the world on the cross in our place. So the heart of all of this is that we don't need to be troubled because Jesus took our trouble upon himself. What are these six ingredients? First, it is belief in God. What does it mean, believe in God, believe also in me? It is belief that God has a house of blessing for everyone who trusts in him through his son. One of the greatest 
aspects of the good news that Jesus came to secure is that by grace, through faith in Jesus, God not only washes our sins clean, he does that, and that's awesome. Not only does he forgive our sins, he does that, and that's awesome, but he also adopts us into his family. We've been collecting coats for some time now for inmates who are released from prison that don't have one and don't have anywhere to get one or any means to get one. Their sentence has been paid, but they are often left to fend for themselves. Grace, the gospel is the good news that in addition to sending his son to prison for us, God also welcomes us into his home as his beloved sons and daughters. In my father's house are many rooms. In the house of God, there's enough rooms for all of his children, for all who would trust in Jesus. And in the house of God, the food is abundant and the fellowship is limitless and it is always illuminated entirely by the glory of God. And the Lord is continually present to love and to bless and to satisfy all of his sons and daughters. Grace, are you troubled? And is your trouble tempting you to be overwhelmed by it? How do you fight that How do you fight that off or how do you fight that back? You believe in God and Jesus that whoever, that whatever troubles may come in this life, a room in the heavenly mansion of God, fellowship of God awaits. Second, it is belief that Jesus is going there to prepare a place for his people. Not only is, are there many rooms in the father's house, but Jesus is going there to prepare a place for his people. Not, not only are All who hope in Jesus promised a room with God, fellowship with God. But we are also promised that it will be specifically and specially prepared for us by Jesus. When Jesus broke the hard news to his disciples that he was going to a place they couldn't immediately follow, there really was a right kind of sadness that overtook them. Chiefly, the disciples would be without their master for a time because Jesus was leaving by way of the cross. Both of those things are rightly troubling, but Jesus charged his followers not to let that trouble dominate them, because once again, there was more to the story. Jesus was leaving them in order to prepare a room for them. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go there to prepare a place for you? I hope it's clear that Jesus was not talking about an actual house. He was not going up there to start construction on a physical building. I hope you understand that already. Jesus was talking about the fact that his death would make possible perfect eternal fellowship with God for sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. It makes no sense that we would be in fellowship with the Lord. But Jesus accomplished for us what we could not accomplish ourselves. That's what he's talking about. How, Grace, as your heart is troubled and the trouble threatens to overtake you, how do you repel and repair that? We believe that Jesus has gone before us to prepare a way for us to be brought into God's presence as his beloved sons and daughters. When trouble comes, we remember that great truth and all it means, no matter what path the troubles take. Third, it is belief that Jesus will bring us to God's house. He's not just going to prepare a way. He'll bring us. As if that were not enough, there's more still. Jesus would soon leave his followers. It's Truly sad, but he was going to get something great ready for them, and he would come again to bring them with him. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. One of the most vulnerable feelings I ever remember feeling 
came when we arrived in Columbia, my wife and th- at the time, three young kids in the middle of the night. We were there to adopt Gabby, and in order to do so, we needed to live there for an undetermined number of weeks as we waited the, the, the court stuff to play out. We didn't speak the language, which showed up in a few comical ways along the way. I ordered cheese instead of cheesecake one time. We didn't know the area. It was late. The particular place we were in had a reputation for being a, a dangerous city, and we were trusting in someone we didn't even know to be at the airport. We had no way of contacting them. To If they weren't, we didn't know them. We were trusting them to be there and then take us safely at night to the apartment in a culture we didn't understand. It would have been really, really nice to have someone that we knew and trusted and was warm and kind meet us and take us all the way from the airport to the place we were going to stay and even walk us in and navigate the meeting the landlady and all that stuff. We didn't have that, though. That's at the heart of what Jesus promised his disciples here. That's, that's at the heart of this third ingredient for not allowing your troubles to overtake you. He promised that he was going to get a great place ready for them and that he would safely lead them there all the way. He was almost certainly speaking of his second coming, which is a great comfort for all who opened Jesus. Lots of things were coming fast at the disciples, lots of hard things. It was okay, even good, for them to experience grief. But Jesus did not want them to despair, to be derailed from their mission, from their hope in God. He therefore shared with them some of the many blessings that would overshadow all of their trials, so that their trials would not overshadow them. Number four, it is belief that we will dwell with the Father and Son forever. We won't just go there, and he won't just bring us there. We'll stay there forever. On another trip I took, I spent some time in the Middle East telling people about Jesus and handing out the Bibles. Handing out Bibles. I know I've shared a bit of this with y'all. There we did have guides, which was really neat. We had local believers and long-term missionaries with us. They took us to the places we needed to go. They showed us the campus we were going to walk around on and hand Bibles out on. They walked us the whole way and like Jesus promised to do with the disciples, to take them all the way to God's house. That, too, was an intimidating culture, and it was, again, very nice to have them with us, to walk us there. However, once we got there, they they left us to ourselves to figure some things out. I've told you before, one of those days we ended up being detained by local law enforcement for over an hour, apart from and unknown to our guides. They weren't there. They had no idea it was happening. Well, Jesus calmed the disciples' troubled hearts by telling them that the road right in front of them would be treacherous in several ways, but it would certainly lead them to their own room and the family and the house of God, that Jesus was preparing that room, that he would come for them to take them all the way, and that he would stay with them forever. I I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. If Jesus' followers would believe that, if his disciples would believe that, if you and I would believe that, it would find vast reservoirs of help for their troubled souls that they might not be overcome by them. Fifth, it is belief that Jesus has told us how to get there. So even before all these things Jesus promised took place, Jesus reminded his disciples, and you know where I'm going. You know, I've told you I've got to leave and you can't come immediately. But you know where I'm going. 
Unsure about that, Thomas spoke up and said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And in what is probably the second most famous passage in John, Jesus replied, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Belief in God and Jesus, as Jesus commands here, means believing that Jesus is the way, the only way to the Father's house and to the eternal life that belongs to all who dwell there. Troubled hearts are calmed, Jesus said, when they truly believe that. He is the only way, but he is the perfect and sure way. No one who comes to him will fail to reach his father's house. I'm going to read something to you by Thomas Kempis, who's a 14th century Dutch author and theologian. He wrote one of the most widely translated and circulated devotionals of all time called The Imitation of Christ. And of this passage, he says this. This is helpful to my soul. Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth with which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Do you get the significance of this promise of Jesus and Kempis's brief retelling of it? It's not merely a promise of salvation, that your sins will be forgiven and you'll go to heaven. It is that, and that's awesome. But the context helps us to see that it is more as well. It is a promise that as long, Grace, as you and I live our lives trusting in the Father's rescue through Christ, as long as you follow the path of faith prescribed and modeled by Jesus, no trouble you encounter even in this life will keep you from reaching your heavenly home with the Father. Trials may be plenty, and some of you know that all too well. But when you come to believe that they are simply a part of the path of Jesus on the way to everlasting joy in God's house, they will not overtake you. Sixth, lastly, Jesus told his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. What does that mean? It means belief that Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus told his disciples that if they wanted to be freed from a troubled soul, in fact, he commanded them to be freed from being overtaken by their troubled soul, they needed to believe that he and the Father are one. To know Jesus, he said, to know me is to know the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. And to believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This was a familiar teaching. Jesus has said it to his disciples many times already. But Jesus understood that this was particularly important for them to grasp at this particular moment. It would be of particular help for them and their troubled souls if they were to believe in Jesus and his union with the Father. Jesus, Grace Church, was one with the same God who spoke the world into existence and has sovereignly held it in place and governed it ever since. Jesus was one with the same God who covenanted with Abraham and his offspring, delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, gave the law to Moses, sent the prophets, established the feasts and the sacrifices, and gave nations over to them. 
if they could trust in that God, and they believed they could, they could trust in Jesus. And by doing so, they need not be troubled since he has power over sin and death over light and life, over feasts and famines, over fruitfulness and barrenness, over victory and defeat. If they were on Jesus' side, he told them, they were on the Father's side. And if they were on the Father's side, what trial could overrun them? None, of course. Well, the rest of the passage is largely a further development of that sixth ingredient of trouble-busting belief. Jesus and the Father are one. It was Philip who chimed in this time and gave Jesus the occasion to further unpack this critical truth. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough. Our troubles will be done. In light of what Jesus had just said, that seems sort of reasonable. Philip's logic is understandable. Jesus said that knowing and seeing him is knowing and seeing the Father. And so Philip says, well, bring him out then. That sounds great. Let's do this. Obviously, Philip didn't quite understand, so Jesus continued in verse 10, Do not believe, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. We're going to come back to this, especially in John 17, to talk about the oneness of Father and Son. But even in this, I hope two things are clear. Jesus is one with the Father, but Jesus is not the same as the Father. They are one in essence, but two in person. Again, John expands on this in the coming chapters, but I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus and the Father are one in essence and two in person, and those truths are trouble-freeing truths. In other words, and all of that is the heart of the nature of God as Father and Son. See as well. Spirit, the heart of what it means to believe in God and Jesus and the heart of the means of not being overcome by our troubles is in this. We cannot believe whatever we want to believe about God and find freedom from overwhelming troubles. Jesus gave us awesome truths to hold fast to, including two thirds here of the triune nature of God, the most solid foundation of all. The triune nature of God and particularly the oneness of the Father and the Son is going to become increasingly clearer through this farewell discourse. For now, it seems good for us, though. We're going to say the words, the first two clauses. Would you put it up on the screen? We're going to say the first two clauses of the Nicene Creed together. For they will help us find purchase, Jesus says, when times are tumultuous. Let's say this together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Jesus told his followers, It is by believing these things 
that troubling things will not overtake you. Believe these things, Grace. These aren't just ideas or concepts. These are the great truths that hold the universe together and are at the heart of the rightness of our faith in Jesus. Fight in the Spirit's strength to believe them. Help one another believe them. Thank God for the forgiveness that is already yours for the parts of them you're still struggling to believe and believe these things that your hearts might not be troubled.